What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Peter Doyle is a co-founder and managing partner at Horizon Kinetics. In this conversation, we discuss Fed policy, Bitcoin, inflation, and the variety of different investment opportunities that Peter and his team have been looking at. I really enjoyed this conversation with Peter, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I'd love to tell you about our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by BlockFi. BlockFi provides financial products for crypto investors. Those products include the BlockFi wallet, a U.S. dollar loan collateralized by your crypto, and a no-fee trading product. BlockFi also released the world's first crypto rewards credit card. It's a Visa credit card that gives you crypto back as your rewards instead of cash back or airline miles. They recently introduced Rewards Flex, so customers choose which crypto assets they receive from their credit card rewards from the BlockFi Rewards credit card. For people in the U.S. who own or are interested in owning crypto or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way to earn more crypto because you earn 1.5% back in crypto on every single purchase and you have no annual fee. I'm an investor in the business and a very, very happy user. The BlockFi Rewards credit card is the easiest way to earn crypto. For a limited time, when you sign up using my link, blockfi.com slash pompcc, you will get $75 back in crypto on your first swipe. Use your everyday spending to diversify your crypto portfolio. I've got the credit card. I love it. And I think you will too. Head on over to blockfi.com slash pompcc today. Next up is Choice. It's time to stop paying capital gains taxes on your Bitcoin, and Choice is here to help. Choice is rebuilding the way Bitcoiners approach retirement by making it possible to invest in Bitcoin and 19 other digital assets inside your IRA. Right now, every time you make a trade, you have to pay capital gains taxes that can be as high as 37%. Choice enables you to trade real Bitcoin, other cryptos, and stocks without having to pay a dime in capital gains. The best part? They just released an iOS app, so you can open an account in less than 10 minutes and take control of your future from the palm of your hand. Join me and the 20,000 other Bitcoiners who have started their tax-efficient stack and open your Choice account today. Search Stack Sats in the App Store or visit choiceapp.io slash pomp. Again, search Stack Sats in the App Store or visit choiceapp.io slash pomp. And one more thing, if you want to hold your private keys, Choice lets you do that too. Start stacking tax-efficient Satoshis today and visit choiceapp.io slash pomp. This episode is brought to you by CryptoToday.com. Exchanges got decentralized, money got decentralized, and the only bottleneck is the very sites listing them all. CryptoToday.com is like decentralized coin market cap. It's the first of its kind. There's no bribes, no connections, or heavy fees are needed to get listed like on the centralized sites. You can simply request on the blockchain and disperse the prize on-chain to the community and get fact-checked by thousands of eager crypto users. CryptoToday.com treats very differently. There's no pre-sale, no VC money, and all of the team is locked up for at least one year. All the centralized competitors have valuations in the billions of dollars. CryptoToday.com started out at $0 as the first decentralized token information site. You can read the white paper at CryptoToday.com. Again, go to CryptoToday.com to learn more. All right, let's get in this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy. 
but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Peter, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Anthony? I'm doing fantastic. I've been looking forward to this conversation for like two weeks now. Um, I want to start first with uh, we are living in some pretty insane times when it comes to uh, monetary fiscal policy and the implications of that. When you all think through your investment process or your research process, do you start with the kind of macro uh, environment in the monetary and fiscal policy environment, or do you start at the actual assets themselves and then overlay that on later? Yeah, we, we start from the bottom up. Um, so we're contrarian investors, and we're looking for where the best opportunities are and what's cheap in the marketplace. Um, and then we pay attention as we go up the ladder to the more broad things. But, you know, you're, you're incredibly right. Um, I would say that there's three things right now that concern us. There's a global debt crisis. There is a breakdown in trust in institutions. And then there's the potential for a serious energy slash commodities uh, shortage. Uh, that the world is going to face. And we, we found a lot of opportunities within each of those areas. When we start to think, let's go to uh, uh, commodities first. It's very obvious that uh, commodities are already kind of a little crazy because of the macro environment, but then we get the Russia-Ukraine conflict and now everything just goes haywire. We've got nickel explodes upwards, then it draws back down. We've got oil and natural gas prices exploding. We've got wheat exploding. We've got concerns around fertilizer prices and potential leading to global famine. I mean, you can just go through the whole, you know, kind of chain of events. How are you guys looking at the commodity market right now? Where do you see the opportunity? So I would say that there's a tremendous, there has been a tremendous divestiture um, by most institutions because of the ESG movement. Um, so you're able to find oil and gas companies at very cheap prices. You're able to find royalty companies that are extraordinary opportunity. You are metal companies that are trading cheaply. Um, we're primarily focused on finding plays that are going to benefit from inflation that really are capital light. So companies that don't have a lot of uh, fixed equipment on or planted equipment on, on their balance sheets, but are going to benefit from the continued rise of uh, commodity prices. And so when you guys start to look at this, do you break down uh, a difference in the commodities when you look at U.S. markets versus uh, various other markets around the world? Or do you look at commodities just globally? We look at it globally. We're, we're looking what what's the supply demand situation. And really what's going on, in our opinion, is that there's a a large portion of the world's population that wants to increase their standard of living and they need and require a tremendous amount of energy and the the supply is not there and in some cases the supply has been deliberately destroyed um, but the demand is going to continue to grow so if you have growing demand and limited supply you're going to see much higher prices and that's what we're in the middle of in our opinion and when you start to think about some of these commodity prices that have just gone uh, pretty crazy over the last two years or so, uh, are you able to break down how much of that is due to you know undisciplined monetary fiscal policy, how much of it's due to supply chains, how much of it's due to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, or do you not worry so much about assigning uh, maybe um, guilt or, or, or kind of causation to any one of those, and you're more so just looking at it as a holistic uh, analysis of the actual prices of the assets and where it's going? Yeah, we're, we're trying to understand the fundamentals and, you know, the, the money printing and all of that and the potential reserve currency of the U.S. dollar going away, that's just kind of potentially uh, icing on the case if you're, if you're long commodities um, and, you, and you're hoping that they go up in price. Um, that's not what we're hoping. If we're right about what we're thinking, 
it's not good for really anyone. Uh, but unfortunately, we're just looking at the facts and it's making us somewhat concerned that you're destroying, the supply is not going to be there. In some cases, as I mentioned, you destroyed the supply and the demand is not going away. So they've been trying to get rid of coal for the last 50 year and coal in the last year is up 250%. And we're using more coal today than we were 50 years ago. Uh, so I don't see us transitioning anytime soon. Um, and that transition is going to require a lot of hydrocarbon. So the, the demand is there um, and the supply is not going to be. So that, that basic economics, that's higher prices for oil and gas and any commodity, any food source that you're, you're thinking of. So this is a really interesting point uh, if we talk about some of the things that folks are trying to get rid of, right? I, I'm going to label in an overgeneralized way the the critics or, or the people who want this stuff to go away are uh, environmentalists in some form or fashion. We'll use that as a label for for kind of the folks who are saying, hey, we should get rid of coal. We should get rid of a lot of these things, uh, usually from an environmental uh, kind of perspective. Uh, then there's folks who I will uh, label as capitalist, and not necessarily that those two groups are opposed to each other, but just as a way for us to have this discussion. The people who say, hey, look, this stuff's not going away regardless of what argument is made. And it feels like uh, there's a pendulum swinging back and forth between these two groups. And over the last couple of years, the quote-unquote environmental group definitely kind of had momentum. And now it feels like with Russia, Ukraine, there's kind of a swing back towards uh, the economic incentives, the capitalism, the, the understanding of energy independence as an important national strategic issue, et cetera. Like, how do you think about uh, where this ends up? Like, do we eventually get off of uh, coal and, and some of these things, or is it just that the economic incentives are way too high and it's nearly impossible? Well, the science doesn't support that. So people think, you know, driving an EV is great for the environment. But if you look at, you know, there's 150 pounds of graphite. Graphite is hard coal. There's copper. There's lithium. There's cobalt. All of those things require a tremendous amount of mining. And with that mining requires a lot of hydrocarbons to actually get it out of the ground um, and to smelt it into the right form. So there's no such thing as renewable energy. Um, and then there's an in intermittency problem with solar and wind, et cetera, that you need the backup of the hydrocarbons anyway. So I think they, they're, they're not living in reality. Um, so nobody wants to leave the world in a better, uh, in a worse off condition, obviously, but you're just not gonna transition. You spent 160 years building this global infrastructure using hydrocarbons, and you, somehow you think you're magically going to leave them tomorrow. That's just not going to happen. And that's part of the problem. They, they destroyed a lot of the supply. If you look at what happened uh, in Germany this, this winter, the price of natural gas went up 1,200%. So, you know, it's costing you 12 times, 12 times more to heat your home this year than it did in the previous winter um, because they divested from nuclear, fossil fuels, coal plants, et cetera. And then they put themselves, themselves in the hands of, of Russia. So, you see what can, what can happen. And we're, we've done that, not to the same degree here in the United States. We don't have the supply and the demand is gonna to continue to grow. So you're gonna see much higher prices, unfortunately. Um, and, it's, and to correct that, it's gonna take a long period of time. It's not, if you started today, which they're not doing, it would take five to 10 years minimum. Um, so my guess is that you're gonna see things get worse before people suddenly realize the science doesn't support what they're saying. 
Yeah. When you think about things like nuclear, uh, it feels like there is um, uh, kind of a science argument and then there is almost a, uh, a perceived uh, social or mainstream narrative that uh, has really scared people into uh, pursuing those types of uh, solutions. Uh, do you think that we can get back to letting scientists be scientists and, and kind of uh, shed some of those obstacles or, or kind of social friction points? Uh, or is this always going to be something that uh, some of these things struggle with? Yeah, that, that's going to be a pretty big hill to climb um, and get people on board with that. Nobody wants it in their backyard. It needs to be along the seacoast generally. You need a lot of water for that. Um, so even though I think the technology has improved there and um, I think we should be exploring that, I, th I think it's going to, nobody's going to allow that to happen. I don't think that, you know, they tried to build one down in Georgia. It's, you know, $10, $12 billion over cost, and I'm not sure it's ever going to be operational. Uh, so it's it's not a likely solution in the short term. What, what do you think the solution is? Like like if you could wave a magic wand and, and get them to do anything, like what would you do? So I would I would focus on um, I said I would say humankind is pretty good at um, avoiding long term slow moving disasters. And if you know hydrocarbons and CO two going into the atmosphere is, is is that problem, I think carbon capture is a is a great way to go. And I think there's probably technologies that should be worked on uh, immediately to make that happen. Uh, so that would be my primary area of focus. Yeah, it's fascinating. Last year, speaking of uh, kind of commodities, I know you guys started to look at uh, some investment in uh, in land. And I, I don't know if this is the first time you guys ever started to allocate to land or, or uh, you'd previously had kind of positions and, and uh, uh, some investment thesis there. But talk to me about land specifically as uh, something that's obviously related to commodities uh, in some form or fashion, but, but also as a standalone investment opportunity. Well, the the biggest, the best investment that I think is available in the marketplace is something I mentioned to you the last time. It's a company called Texas Pacific Land. Uh, it was a trust, now it's a corporation, and they own uh, about nine hundred, eight hundred eighty thousand acres in the western part of Texas, and just happens to sit upon a, a, an ocean of oil. Um, so, they they derive a lot of benefit from basically people drilling on their on their land, um, where they they retain the royalty interest. And then also crossing their land and putting uh, pipelines, et cetera, to build out that infrastructure that we need. Um, and that's the one area where actually development for energy and, and trying to get it out of the ground continues to grow. So that land, I would say that 880 acres, if you put a conservative value on it today, is probably worth about $4 billion. If you think we're going into an inflationary period of time and it can keep up with inflation, say it grows at 10% per annum, that's going to be worth a lot, plus the income that you get from the royalties, from the, uh, the natural gas and oil, et cetera, the, the company is still very undervalued, something that we've owned since the mid-1980s, actually, uh, professionally. So I'm not a, a public market investor by any means, and I don't want to uh, expose myself for you to blast my uh, ignorance or uh, or na naivety here. Uh, but when I Google Texas Pacific Land Corp, uh, the market cap's about $10.8 billion. And the PE ratio is forty. Um, when you start to think about these types of uh, assets, is it something where, would you say it's one of the best investment opportunities? You guys are looking at the short term, or given that you've owned it since you know the eighties, early nineties, it's more so over the next you know twenty, thirty years. This is something that you think is just misunderstood by the market. I think it's completely misunderstood by the market. Um, so it, it appears expensive on the surface, but if you do the underlying work to it, you realize actually it's, it's fairly still very uh, attractive. I would say that this year, given where prices are today, 
at the beginning, probably could earn you know seventy, eighty dollars a share. So it's actually not trading at that that high of a price. It's trading at sixteen times. And if you if you look at basically the operating characteristics of Texas Pacific Land Trust, it rivals the best monopolies that you would ever come across in the history of of mankind. And if you looked at the performance from let's say two thousand and ten through the end of two thousand and twenty. It's annualized about 42% per annum versus the uh, NASDAQ, I think it was up uh, 21%, maybe the S&P is up 17% per annum on that, on that basis. And oil and gas companies were actually negative during that period of time. So it looks expensive, but it's truly not expensive. And it's something that uh, I personally buy on a very regular basis. I, when I wake up in the morning, I, I say, I don't own enough exposure to uh, things that are going to benefit from inflation. And that's, you know, the best opportunity that I see in the marketplace, in my opinion. Yeah, it's 2010. It was trading between like 20 and 35 bucks. Now it's $1,400 a share. So uh, up quite significantly in, uh, in the last 10, 12 years. Uh, when you think about inflation, what, where, what else are you guys doing? Where else are you allocating capital to protect yourself or to benefit from uh, higher levels of inflation? See, inflation is really a, a tremendously uh, big problem. And how you navigate this is, gonna, is, is incredibly tricky because you can be right about being, in, let's say, the right asset class. But let's say the, uh, your ability to pass along price increases are not there. So even though you're, you're, you're able to increase prices for your, your goods, maybe the cost of you know, your inputs are growing at a faster rate and the employee costs are going up more. So you could be in the right asset class, let's say equities, but you could actually end up with a very poor result because you're not, in real terms, you're not keeping up with inflation. So we've looked at, and we started a fund uh, it's called the Inflation Beneficiaries Fund, the symbol is INFL. And if you look at that, you go down the list, you'll see companies like royalty companies, uh, Texas Pacific Land, as I mentioned, Franklin, Nevada, you'll see uh, various exchanges. So financial exchanges, generally they're, they're oligopolistic or monopolistic uh, in character. They benefit from increased volatility and they benefit from increased volume. And there's generally no associated cost with that additional volume or very not very uh, minimal uh, new cost associated with increased volume. So generally any increased volume falls right to the bottom line. Um, and there's no real capital cost or people's cost as a result of plugging in a new mainframe computer. Yeah. So we're trying to find capital light businesses that will benefit and typically typically from either high trading or, or from commodity prices going higher, but they don't have the operational risk. Yeah, it, it's fascinating because the Texas Land uh, Corporation only has uh, estimated 92 employees, right? $10 billion company, 92 employees, not very uh, capital intensive there, uh, given what they're doing. So, and that, that's up from literally eight employees uh, for the bulk of its existence. It was actually, it's been around since 1880s. Uh, and they, they built out a water business because you need a lot of water to basically do the fracking. Uh, so that's only the, that 92 is a, a number that's only come into play over the last, say, five, seven years. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, when, when you start to think about uh, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin specifically, uh, as I mentioned at the uh, intro, um, you all have been paying attention to this since about 2015 in terms of research. In 2017, you started to actually get into the mining business, and from there, I've expanded a lot of what you're doing in the space. Maybe give us a quick overview. Like, what is the thesis? Why are you all uh, who, you know, frankly, are just arbitraging? You have really long time horizons and, and tend to be very uh, uh, kind of research driven and investors, why are you so interested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? You know, when I first heard the story, um, it immediately hit home with me based on supply and demand, basic economics, right? There's a limited supply, there's growing demand, 
correcting mechanism is the price. So I could see how you could make a lot of money of it. But the thing that I mentioned starting off, a crisis in confidence, uh, there's a crisis in confidence in our financial leaders, our legal leaders, our medical leaders, et cetera. So Bitcoin takes away uh, the ability to print money and, and to steal time from you. And it puts it into the hands of basically math or, or an algorithm. And that's a very powerful tool. And for the bulk of history, human history, most of the time, money has actually been in the hands, private hands, not in government's hands. And the governments around the world have abused that power. And I think people are going to want to take that back. And I see Bitcoin potentially playing a massive role in that. So uh, there's a possibility, I don't know how it's going to play out, that Bitcoin becomes a reserve currency uh, status. Um, and the world actually puts itself on that standard. Um, and if that happens, the you know, everyone's going to want to own that. I think you're starting to see that play out. And, and it's almost impossible to keep out, keep up with the progress that's being made literally on a daily basis within the Bitcoin community and, and things that are going there. And I, you know that probably better than anyone. When you think about uh, Bitcoin's future, uh, I, I always say that, like, it's pretty obvious. It's a great store of value over long periods of time, right? But one of the best performing, if not the best performing asset over the last decade, compounding at 150% annually uh, during that time period. Uh, and still, you know, relatively small percentage of the global population has any, right, on the grand scheme of things. And, and so fixed supply asset, if that demand continues to uh, uh, to become pervasive, then obviously the price will go up. Uh, what do you think is uh, kind of likely to occur? Do you think that Bitcoin could rise to be the global reserve currency? Do you think it becomes uh, just another asset that central banks put into their reserves? Like, what do you think is like the likely outcome here? I think I think the established um, powers are going to fight it for time. I think it's but it's inevitable, um, and I think they're going to get on board with that. So my own assessment is that you know most people are viewing Bitcoin as still a curiosity. I'm viewing it more as a necessity uh, to fix a lot of the problems in the world. So my assessment is that a single Bitcoin is ultimately going to go into the many millions of dollars. Um, how it gets from point A to point B, nobody knows. Uh, you know, really most. And not most, every currency has collapsed relative to Bitcoin, as you pointed out. And I think that it's going to continue because I don't see how they get out of this debt burden without continuing to print and to inflate. And I think more and more people are going to recognize that as a store of value and potentially a reserve, uh, the world's reserve currency. So I'm pretty optimistic about it. And again, you don't need a big amount um, of exposure to this if in that success mode. You'll, you'll do incredibly well and you'll, you'll be, be able to outrun the inflation that I think likely is, is going to occur. Yeah, I, uh, I I tend to be pretty bullish, and I know that uh, that you are too. We may have to compete on who's more bullish. Uh, when you think about uh, Bitcoin, how is it structured in your portfolio? Is there like a percentage that you that you try to keep uh, and rebalance to? Did you just buy some early, and that's the you know that's the position you're going to hold, or, or how do you think about it? Yeah, that that's really what it was. We, when we immediately, I don't I don't know why this seems to be a problem for a lot of professional managers, but they. You know, if it, they can't make it up size, we said we don't need this to be a large size. So suddenly the lights went out. Um, what we what we needed to do is basically put it in as a one percent position, half a basis point, uh, half a percentage point position, and allow it to go uh, and grow. And if we're right, that small amount is going to basically start dominating and have a very large impact on the portfolio. So. We we did that in 2015, early 2016, bought it in. Uh, professionally, and we've left it alone. 
And my advice to anyone that's working within our organization is that it's a bigger position now, leave it alone. Accept the volatility. This story has not completed itself yet. And, you know, really what you risk, you risk 1% of capital back in 2015, early 2016, and, and let this thing play out. Yeah, it, it um, it, it's very fascinating to me the whole idea of uh, rebalancing, uh, and I always tell people that uh, you know, let's just use taxes as an example. Taxes is a financial penalty for uh, rebalancing, right? And if you can basically fight it, just just let it go. And if it's your best performers, uh, you're essentially violating the you know old Warren Buffett line of like, don't interrupt compounding unnecessarily. So it, it definitely pays to be a Rip Van Winkle investor, um, and particularly if you can justify the, you know, the valuations. I would say what one of the problems that I'm seeing in the marketplace today, like and, and the whole rise of indexation that you've seen over the last decade in earnest, is that the top-heavy companies now, it's pretty hard to justify the valuations from those. So I don't see how people are going to end up with a good experience from that level of concentration. And I think a big chunk of their success has been that they've been able to pay employees with stock options. And if they ever had to pay them in cash um, compensation, you would see that the real profitability of those companies is a lot less. So they've actually been able to outsource or use the marketplace, i.e. the price appreciation of their stock, to actually compensate their employees. And I think that could run itself in reverse. If that does, that's not a great area to be. High concentration in the, you know, those tech names that we're all familiar with. So I could see you get yourself getting real hurt there. So I'm a big proponent of, of concentration within portfolios um, as long as you can justify that the valuation is there. And in the case of Texas Pacific Land Trust, in our portfolio, it's a very high concentration in a lot of them. And I, I still look at it and, and how I understand it and know it, it looks still very cheap to me and, and has a long way to run. Talk to me about the mining business specifically. I know you guys set up uh, a business that uh, that you've been uh, heavily involved in there. Um, but but what is your thoughts on mining? How do you guys think about allocating capital to mining versus buying Bitcoin directly? And, and uh, what are you guys doing? So, uh, well, you can, you can obviously mine a Bitcoin much cheaper than going into the market uh, and, and doing that. And, it, you know, the reason we got into it, and it really was led by my colleague, Murray Stahl, um, is that, you know, if we're going to be involved in this, we should understand it and we should understand it from the ground up. Um, so we started off very small and let's buy a couple of machines, see how they do. Then we said, okay, let's buy some more machines. We'll outsource them. We'll put them down in a facility down in North Carolina. That facility got itself into trouble. Um, there was nothing wrong with the business, but they over leveraged the, you know, the volatility. They weren't paying attention to that. So we went in, helped them refinance. We took a controlling stake in that company. Uh, and then we started to build out more. And then we went into the marketplace and we raised money from investors, institutional investors in some cases. And we, uh, we did a, a listing uh, for, for a, a mining entity uh, not too, uh, not in the not too distant past. And we, we think that the mining industry itself is going to be a very large industry. And uh, we want to be a player in that. But we, we take our time. We, we pay attention to the prices of the machines. Um, cash does not burn a hole in our pockets. You know, we want to make sure that we're going to get paid back on any machines that we buy and take into account the halvings that's coming up in you know, another 770 days, make sure that we're going to get the delivery on time and we're paying the right price that, that we think we'll get our money out. Um, so we, we, we sidestepped a lot of the landmines. Um, my colleague, Murray, I think did a, a fantastic job. Um, but we're in it. We're, we hope to be in it for the next, you know, 50, 100 years. Um, you know, obviously, I won't be around to see that, but we, we plan on being uh, that being a part of our business for a very long period of time. 
And how do you think about allocating to your own uh, mining business versus like buying publicly traded miners or, or any of the other ways you could get exposure to the mining business? Well, you know, so professionally, we have a little bit of a conflict. Uh, we would going to buy, you know, our, our mining entity for them. So um, we're, we've looked at the uh, publicly traded ones and we're starting a blockchain uh, ETF uh, that should be out in another few months. And they're going to be part of that. They're going to some of those names are actually attractive and we think they're doing smart things and particularly keeping it on their balance sheet. And if you have a belief, as I do, that the price of Bitcoin is going to go up a lot more, um, those companies are going to become much more valuable in the future. And right now, I think they're very cheap because they've gotten beaten down in the, in the very recent past. So uh, before I let my brothers ask a couple of questions, my last thing I want to talk about is uh, inflation. It's 7.9% officially. If you look at the CPI you know, basket, I mean, it's just kind of comical how they're calculating some of this stuff. Uh, I guess one question is like, what do you think inflation actually is right now? And then two is just how much worse is this going to get? Well, you know, listen, I think Michael Saylor gives a great answer to that. Everyone is different. Everyone has a different basket of goods and services that they're going to buy. Uh, but I would say that the true number for most people, it's running somewhere in the mid-teens, probably approaching 20%. Um, and I, I, I actually think it's going to be, you know, we're going to see an inflation, unlike the 1970s, when we went into that inflationary period in a much better financial condition, we're going to see a much, much uh, more troublesome inflationary uh, environment going forward. So our debt burden is, is a lot worse today. Uh, the lack of supply in the, uh, the commodities and the uh, oil and natural gas that I mentioned, um, you can see some really crazy things. Um, the potential, the dollar losing its reserves, uh, reserves uh, status. Um, so you can see the price of, you know, oil price in dollars at some crazy level. So, you know, it wouldn't shock me if, if the price of oil got to 200, 300 in the not too distant future. Yeah. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it certainly would not shock me. What, what can they do? Should, should they raise rates aggressively and, and just take the pain or what would you do if you, if you were the federal reserve? So I, I think they're doing what they know they need to do. They need to talk about raising rates aggressively. Um, I think they're going to raise them a few more times, but if you did that, you would choke off the economy very quickly. The cost of funding uh, be a real problem. So I think they're going to end up stopping, and I think they realize that they need to inflate their way out of this, uh, but they want to do it in a way that most people aren't paying, paying attention to it. So my guess is that you know rates are not going to rise so dramatically in the future, although I, I see them I don't see how they can not do something in the next, at least over the next several months. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's fascinating to kind of think through this. Joe, John, what questions you guys got? Peter, thanks for joining us. Uh, my question would just be around how you value Bitcoin, right? So from my seat, you're someone who has looked at a bunch of different investment asset classes and, and you obviously have uh, kind of different models for each one of them, I'm sure. But Bitcoin is entirely different in my mind, right? How do you think about what's the fair value of Bitcoin is, or do you just think it's so important right now and, and is going to be so much bigger in the future that you don't necessarily worry about that? Yeah, so um, we, we, we do try to look at that. Um, I look at, let's say, the, the domestic or the, or the global debt market is something like uh, probably over, easily over $100 trillion. That's probably even the United States debt, debt market, uh, where you're getting negative real returns. Um, if you're looking at that, I know a lot of people can't move out because institutionally they have to buy the treasuries, et cetera. But if you're looking at that and you say, if I had to make a bet between that or owning a 10-year treasury, would I have my money in a 10-year treasury of Bitcoin? I think a lot of people are going to come to the conclusion, I should have some exposure to Bitcoin. So they're going to steal from the 
fixed income market. They're going to steal from the real estate market. You know, not steal. The Bitcoin is going to basically take from a lot of different markets. And when you look at all of the money printing that has gone on, the money stock around the world, you know, you're talking trillions upon trillions and trillions of dollars. So if you take that divided by 21 million coins, you can come up with an extraordinary number. Um, so I don't know where it's going to where it's going to stop. I think at some point it's, it's going to stop and then it's going to be a, a, a very stable asset and it's going to go up relative to how much other currencies debase themselves on an annual basis. But that number is an extraordinarily high number. Um, so again, I think my own assessment is that, you know, a single Bitcoin will ultimately go into the many, many millions of dollars. Um, so I'm sticking around for it. <laughs> John, what do you got? Peter, I'm curious about what conversations you've had with your guys' clients, you and your team, um, just regarding Bitcoin and whether thoughts about it that you guys are a value-based investment firm and you guys are going after Bitcoin. Yeah, so so we don't want to be known as the Bitcoin firm. We don't want to be known as the inflation firm. We want to be known as people that do sensible things with your capital. And right, we're trying to increase your purchasing power with the passage of time through the investments that we make. Um, so when we first made the investment back in 2015, people thought we were crazy. And we could, you know, we had enough credibility where we say, listen, we're not, we're making it a 1% position, a half a percentage point position. So they gave us some slack. Then they saw it working. Um, and should we take some off the table? And, we, you know, the, what I mentioned to Anthony earlier, leave it alone. Let the thing play out. This thing is still very early, early stages. And most people have no concept of what it really is and what it could represent for the world. And um, the best thing to do is basically leave it alone and, and, and let things unfold. And everything that I see, uh, more and more demand is coming onto it and networks are being built out and the ecosystem is growing at, a, at a really impressive rate and really intelligent people are behind it. And I think ultimately they're going to win. I think, I think that, that credibility crisis in the financial world, whether it's the Fed, the Treasury, the political world crisis, I think people are going to be looking for an alternative and you're going to basically, instead of this globalization, you're going to have this kind of unbundling of that. And people are going to say, you know what, I'm not listening to, to the experts anymore because they aren't right. I have this better alternative over here. And one of those better alternatives is going to be Bitcoin. Peter, I've got one more question for you, which I, I think really just sums up uh, Horizon Kinetics, your approach to investing and, and the great work that you guys have done over the last uh, number of years. Uh, when people look at your investment philosophy, and this is your guys' words, not mine, uh, you say that you're a fundamental value, contrarian-oriented, fact-based investment advisor. You're founded on the belief that a short-term investment approach widely adopted with the modernization of financial markets ultimately produces suboptimal returns. And that you believe investors are better served not by taking more risk, but by expending their by extending their investment time horizon, which affords far wider ranges of opportunity and valuation than are available to time constrained investors. And so, what you're essentially talking about here is this time arbitrage. And so, if we say that most investors in the market today are short time horizon, you know, viewpoints. What is your time horizon? Is it measured in five years, 10 years, 50 years? Like, how do you think about, okay, we're going to extend out that time frame. We're going to use that as an arbitrage opportunity uh, to drive better returns. But how do you come up with what that time frame looks like? So, so the, the best holding period, if you find something great, is forever, right? So I mentioned that Texas Pacific Land Trust, we purchased it in professionally in 1985, and we hold it today. And I'm still telling you that it's a tremendous opportunity. So obviously, we're, we're talking, you know, decades, right? Um, so really, we're, we're trying to find things that have 
long-term product life cycles, things that have a great degree of predictability. And as long as the valuations don't become too excessive, uh, leave it alone and let the businesses compound for you. And what will happen is that your portfolio will naturally undiversify. Your best companies will move to the top. And as long as those companies still have the same you know, operating characteristics and aren't trading at crazy prices, best thing to leave it alone and, and you'll capture those business returns. And if those business returns are much better than the S&P 500, with the passage of time, you'll end up with a much better return than the S&P 500. So it's it's really kind of Buffett-esque in its, its approach. Um, now, Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger don't like uh, Bitcoin and they've called it rat poison. I, I'm not sure they quite understand what this potentially means. And again, we're, we're not so stuck on something that we can't say we can allocate a very small amount of our capital. Um, and now this is going back when it was a much more white knuckle phase for Bitcoin. And let's let's see this unfold. And Bitcoin is not a cash producing asset. It's it's basically like a it's essentially like a currency potentially or or gold. It's a store of value, um, and it may become the reserve currency of the world. And 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 who knows what that's going to be worth? Um, I think it's going to be worth in the many trillions of dollars. Ultimately. And when you see some of the assets uh, or investments that you've made previously uh, continue to rise. What is the period uh, that you check in on valuations? And, and is there a framework that you use to say, hey, look, you know, we really like the fundamentals, but it's just too expensive right now. We got to diversify from it. Like, what does that process look like? Yeah, so, so we like to think that we practice what we call intelligent inactivity, right? So we buy something, we have an investment thesis. And our job, literally every day, and going to the library and, and sitting down and reading, is to poke holes in our own investment thesis, right? We already believe something. So, can we find a credible, you know, argument that, hey, we're wrong in our thinking? And if we're wrong in it, let's, let's, how, how bad will it be for this investment? And it could be catastrophic. Let's get out of it as, as quickly as possible. Um, so that's really what we try to do. It's, it's like we're sitting there. Is there some competitive thing that's coming on in the horizon? So the development of the Internet actually had a, had a very large influence on the profitability of a lot of industries. And if you were not paying attention to that, you could have gotten hurt. So things that were formerly great businesses, let's say the yellow pages as an example, um, or your maker of calendars, et cetera, uh, with the iPhone, that business is going away because of the advances in technology. So your job, our job, is to really pay attention to, to the underlying investment thesis and then make sure that you're paying attention to any dangers that are going to invalidate that investment thesis. And you know, if, if it's not a good investment thesis, there's no right price. You get get out of the position. But if if it's good, leave it alone and let it compound for you. Yeah, it, it it's really uh, it's really fascinating, kind of how you guys are so focused on the inactivity, buying great things, long time uh, arbitrage. So it shouldn't surprise people that you also have this culture of uh, of writing. And uh, I know that you guys put a big importance on uh, being able to actually articulate the investment thesis in writing. Talk about why that's been so important over the years. It, it slows the investment process down, right? So I, I wake up in the morning. I think I'm a bright guy. Let me go to the office. I, I came up with this great idea that I thought about like while I was getting ready for work. Uh, let me go act on it. Let's, let's stop that immediately. Um, so if you, you put a lot of times you put pen to paper and you realize that your great idea is actually a horrible idea. And what you thought was going to be a good long investment might actually end up being a better short investment. So when you start slowing the investment process down and you start working through the qualitative and quantitative aspects of any investment, um, it, it helps you think better. And I think, you know, I think you understand uh, because you write a fair amount yourself. It basically 
clarifies your thoughts. It, it allows you to speak more intelligently on the topic, and it gives you a better insight as to as to what the investment is is going to do in the future. I uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, if if you had uh, one thing to leave everyone with, uh, there's a lot of uh, young folks that are watching this. Uh, many of them would uh, would dream of uh, of kind of having the career that you've had and the success that you've had. What's the one thing that you wish you knew when you were first starting out that uh, that many of these young folks would uh, would benefit drastically as they go into investment careers? Yeah, so we we don't have a, a perfect roadmap. Uh, I would say one of the best things to do is actually just start. Right. Um, so the, the way we, we started, we were value-oriented investors. We started the Internet Mutual Fund. Uh, the, the story behind that is actually an interesting story. We jumped in a car. We went down to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. We met a guy who was running a mutual fund out of his living room. Every professional told us it was going to cost us a couple of hundred thousand dollars uh, to start this fund. We didn't have a couple of hundred thousand when we were starting it. And we said, this guy is doing it for virtually nothing. And he gave us an education. We paid him a couple hundred dollars for the education. We came back and we said, okay, we can do this on our own. So it wasn't so much that we were thought we had some great opportunity, but I, I would say that the fact that we actually, we studied the situation, we saw the opportunity and we acted on it. So if you do that, don't hesitate, don't doubt yourself, act on it. And if you make a mistake, that's a learning experience that, that you'll, you'll, you'll gain from as well. So a lot of it is... Um, People paralyze themselves, and I think I think taking action is actually a great a great way to move ahead in life. Yeah, that's uh, that's fantastic advice. Where can we find uh, you on the internet, or send people to find more about Horizon Kinetics? So, me personally, I'm not too uh, too out there, uh, but Horizon Kinetics you can find us at horizonkinetics.com. Uh, we have a number of uh, mutual funds. We have um, a new ETF that I mentioned that we launched a little over a year ago that's done incredibly well. Um, I think it's great inflation head. My colleague, James Davalos has done a fantastic job with that, runs that symbol on that is INFL. If you have an interest and you're concerned about inflation, that's certainly one area they'll be looking at. Um, go to our website, read our research. If you don't think the research is any good, it makes it easy to walk on bias. But I think, I think most people that read the research say these people are thinking about things. I, uh, I tend to think you're doing a great job. And uh, my, my question about you on the internet was just the opportunity for you to tell everyone you're not on the internet. Uh, because uh, I've had multiple people after the last time you were on the podcast, they were like, hey, where can I like find what he's publishing? And I was like, ah, you're going to have to go to the website. I don't think you're going to find him tweeting or, uh, or providing any analysis on LinkedIn. So uh, good luck. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. I, I literally could talk to you for hours and, uh, and I just appreciate all the work you're doing. Anthony, thanks for having me. Guys, nice meeting you for the first time. Nice to meet you. Thank you for coming on. All right. See you later, Peter. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.